teach them how to minister. But you see, only unless you have a burden for the lost, only if you have a burden for broken marriages, if you have a burden for hurting kids, if you've got a burden for, and it goes on and on and on, Mexico or just reaching out and being utilized. Nehemiah was called to build a wall, but he had first to weep over the ruins. He had to let the reality of the brokenness sink into him. He had a burden. He had a burden. Unquenchable burden. Beloved, we just cannot slip into God's service as a kind of hobby. Do you know that? Serving God is not a hobby. Serving God takes everything we have plus what we don't have, which God supplies. Because if we just treat serving God as a hobby, we will fail horribly. We will fail miserably. And we will sin. And we will sin. Before we do anything for God, we've got to first survey the ruins. We've got to look at it. We've got to look at the need. We've got to assess the need. We've got to pray over the need. We've got to weep over the need. We've got to fast and mourn. That's what he did. You can't move one inch into God's service and be really fruitful unless all that happens. Are you with me? And it's through that process that the burden begins to sink down inside. How many people have people you work with and neighbors who are not Christians that maybe you're a little intimidated by, you want to share with them, but you haven't done it, or you've done it in a lame fashion. How many of you who just raised your hands have undergone this process of thinking about that person, seeing the brokenness of their life, seeing their, the future that's waiting for them, and have come to a place where you are deeply deeply, deeply burdened and concerned for that person. And you have wept over them. And you have fasted. And you have prayed. And you have mourned. And you said, oh God, give me that soul. Don't let me rest. God, stir my heart. Move in me. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> True. But that's a whole lot different than going to that person and say, you know what? I know you don't want to hear this. I know we've talked about this before, but I care about you. I care about you. I've been praying. God's got you in my heart. Oh, we got to talk. Amen. <laughs> Can you picture yourself doing that? Most of us, no way. Oh, sure, you can do it. You're the pastor. You're supposed to do it. But you know what? You sing, I promise you, you single out one person. You single out one person. And you say, God, give me a heart for that person. Give me a heart for that person. And you commence to weeping over that. You say, God, break my heart. Break my heart for that person. And you know what? 
he'll do it. But you've got to wait on him. You've got to wait on him. You've got to wait on him for days. Fast. Pray. Weep. Mourn. Get in touch with the real brokenness. Get in touch with the real need. And I promise you, God will break your heart and you will have a compassion for that person. You will have a concern for that person that you never knew was possible. And you will be moved by God's Spirit in God's time with His resources. And He will have already prepared that heart because you have been praying and fasting and mourning and weeping. You know a marriage that needs help? Same thing. Husbands, is your wife gone? Wives, is your husband gone? You got kids that are astray? It's the same thing. Just say, what's broken? God, show me around me what's broken and then, and then get my attention, focus my attention and let me start doing this. That's not like a good idea. You think that might do something? It was only after his weeping, only after his despair, only after his prayers, that there came that determination. But he carried the burden for four months. You can read his prayer. I want you to turn over to chapter 2. It's four months, four months that he's carrying this burden. And he is so burdened that he cannot any longer put on his happy face in front of the king when he goes into the king's court to bring the cup. Now you got to know, in the Persian court, it was a death sentence, automatic. If you came into the king's presence and you frowned, and you weren't a happy person. It's kind of like when you guys come to church, you know, you come up the stairs, you better be smiling. <laughs> oh, yes, pastor, everything's fine. It's four months he's carrying this burden. And he can no longer contain it within himself. He can't hold it in. We're told when wine was brought for the king, I took the wine and gave it to him. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Now most people would be absolutely terrified to even go in the king's presence for sure thinking they're going to die, Nehemiah is utterly, absolutely dependent on the Lord. It's the Lord that's got to deal with the, with the king's heart. Do you, you see the risk? I mean, he hasn't even gone yet. He hasn't even left yet to go to Jerusalem to do the work on the wall. He's still got yet to contend with the king. He's carrying this burden for four months. And he's so overwhelmed with it 
It was so real in his heart, so deep was the conviction, so heavy was it, it could no longer be hidden. And yet he waited on the Lord. He didn't rush out and say, Oh, king, oh, king, oh, king, I can't stand this anymore. You've got to release me and send me down to Jerusalem. He apparently didn't tell anybody else what was in his heart. He waited on the Lord for four months. Four months, weeping, mourning, praying, fasting, waiting on the Lord. God, what would you have me do? And how would you have me do it? If you would have me go, Lord, you open the door. And so the king questions him. He says, I was very much afraid because I knew my life was hanging in the balance here. I was very much afraid and I said to the king, may the king live forever. <laughs> oh, king, you're a great, gracious king. May you live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king says, off with your head. Is that what it says? No, not at all. The king said to me, what is it you want? Totally unexpected, I'm sure, by Nehemiah. What is it you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven. Oh, God, give me wisdom and give me grace, Lord, before I open my mouth with an answer. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight. Now, incidentally, King Artaxerxes is not a believer. Do you know that? He's not a believer. He's a, he's a pagan king. And here is a believer in the service of a non-believer doing his very best, excellent work. That's a little sidelight, a little corollary for all of us. He says, if I have found favor in your sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. This begins the process in chapter 2, first 10 verses of the preparation and the equipping now of Nehemiah. His heart is already prepared. His heart is equipped. God has moved him. He's given him a burden. He can't contain it. He's opened the door. The king has said, what can I do for you? And he says, oh, king, if I found favor in your sight, there's three things I need. First, I need to be sent. I'm not going to presume and go on my own. I need to be sent. And then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. Can you imagine? Nehemiah is going, whoo, whoo, in his heart. <laughs> He's excited. The king's actually going to let me go. Isn't it amazing when God opens the doors and he opens them just like that? And you go, whoa, this is too easy. We're not used to it being easy, are we? We're used to it, used to it being very, very tough. You know why? 
Because we don't what? Weep, mourn, fast, and pray. We just launch right in. We believe in Dale Carnegie. Find a need and fill it. Go for it. Lean on your own understanding. Don't acknowledge the Lord in all your ways. Proverbs says if you do, he'll make your path straight. Isn't that exciting? There's three things. First, he wants to be sent. First, he wants to be sent. Second, he wants to be safe. He says in verses 7 and 8, he says, I also said to him, if it please the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. Again, he's not presuming on God. He's saying, I want to be safe. I want to go, but I want safe conduct. That ought to be part of our prayer. Lord, I want to go minister in this situation. You put this burden on my heart. I can't hardly contain it. But Lord, I'd like some safe conduct. <laughs> now that doesn't, by safe conduct, I'm talking in the spiritual realm. I'm not meaning that we are going to not experience some hardship. But that we say, God, give me intercessors. Give me people who will go with me in prayer. Give me people who will stand with me in prayer. Give me letters. People who pray. And then the third thing, he says, and may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall, for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. Can you believe it? The king granted his request. God's first preparation for all of his servants is a burden. Is a burden. Is a burden. And that burden only comes when we wait. When we wait. And when he sees that we are willing to accept the burden, we're waiting, we're waiting. He knows the condition of our heart. And in that process of waiting, some people say, why is this taking so long? Because God's looking at our heart. Are we postured yet? Are we in a position where he looks and he sees that we are willing to accept the burden, to take ownership of the burden? Because at that point, he opens the door. He opens the door. I am convinced if we, really, if we really functioned and if we implemented these few principles, there would be fewer people resigning from the work of the Lord. There'd be a whole lot more people going long-term serving God in ministry, be it formal or informal, when it gets difficult. Because when it gets difficult, it's only those people with that deep conviction, that deep burden, who are going to stay in the battle, who are going to stay in the process. We live in a day, we live in an age where the word commitment means very little. Amen? People are bailing on all kinds of commitments. People are flaky all over the place. And when the going gets tough, people quit. They quit. I can't. Their priorities all of a sudden change. 
Their comfort zone is uh, invaded. And then they resign the ministry. They say, oh, I've had enough. I'm out. I've done my share. Rather than pressing on, persevering. David, King David, said, I will sacrifice to my God nothing that costs me nothing. I will not bring a sacrifice to him that costs me nothing. He understood. He had that burning, deep conviction, David did. So not only did Nehemiah carry a burden, he also sought a blessing. A blessing to be sent, a blessing for safety, and one to be supplied. Now, do you think he's asking too much? Huh? I don't. He said, well, where's faith? He has faith. He's just saying, this is what I need, this is what I need, this is what I need. And guess what? He gets it all. He gets it all. Where did it all start? Where did it all start? When he was recognizing the need, he was waiting on the Lord, he was what? He was, he was weeping, he was mourning, he was fasting, and he was praying. And he, he, and, and he developed a burden, developed a deep burden. And God just began to open the doors, just began to open the doors, one after another. The Persian king gave him everything he wanted, everything he indeed needed, everything indeed he asked for. Isn't that astounding? In the second half of chapter 2, you see him beginning to face the challenge. Three things in facing a challenge. He finally gets to Jerusalem. Verse 11 He gets to Jerusalem, and by the way, when he goes to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters, the king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. He says, and when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, now get this, this is incredible. These guys are going to come after him. These guys are going to provide opposition. When they heard that somebody was coming with great supplies to rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. <laughs> when you start to promote the welfare of somebody, guess what? What happens? When God's people say, let's arise and build, the enemy says, let me arise and oppose. It's a given every single time. And so he's got to face the challenge. Now he's there. Now he's in Jerusalem. And there's three things to face in the challenge. The first one is this. He's going to investigate. He's going to personally investigate the scene. Now, he's in the city for three days. He doesn't make a move for three days. He's still waiting. He is not in a giant hurry. He gets into the city, prays probably, continues to seek the Lord. After three days, we're told that he goes out at night. 
He doesn't share with anybody what he's doing. And he's on his horseback, and he rides through all the ruins of the city wall, from gate to gate to gate. Kind of reminds me of Jesus in Gethsemane wrestling at night, pondering at night, agonizing at night, coming finally face to face with the brokenness. He's coming face to face with the brokenness. He's coming face to face with having to implement to do something. When was the last time that we wrestled all night in prayer, in mourning, over some desperate spiritual need that God has shown you? So he's going to survey the wall. He's going to count the cost, if you will, Check out the magnitude of the task. And so he does that. So investigating is the first part of facing the challenge. He's got to see just exactly what's in front of him, just exactly what the need is personally. So verse 11, he says, I went to Jerusalem after staying there three days. I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what God, what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. So he surveys all the mess and all the wreck of the wall. And then in verse 17, we're told, he says, then I said to him, he says, he came back. Here's the second element. He elicits cooperation. He's going to have some help. This is a bigger job than I can handle. So he's going to draw some other people in. I can't evangelize the world. I can't evangelize the South Bay. I've been out there. I've investigated it. It's a mess. So I'm eliciting some help. <laughs> Look at this. Look what he says. You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins. And he's telling all the nobles and the officials and so forth. And its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And we will no longer be in disgrace. I, told, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, No, nah, the job's too hard, no way. How did they reply? They said, Let's get to it. Let's get to it. Let's start the rebuilding. And so they began this good work. Now, you investigate, you elicit help, the work begins. Here's the third element in terms of facing the challenge. You gotta be determined. You gotta be determined. There's no way you can do this without a determination. When God's people say, let's arise and build, the devil says, let me arise and oppose. Now, no sooner do they say, we're gonna build, than look what happens. In verse 19, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Opposition always starts first and foremost from the outside in the form of scorn and ridicule. Are you with me? The enemy's going to find somebody 
to ridicule you. Or he is going to put thoughts in your mind. When you think about stepping out and get involved in ministry, he's going to immediately come and oppose you. When you rise up and say, I'm going to do something. God has given me a vision. I have a burden. I'm going to step out right away. The thoughts come, who do you think you are? You can't do this. You can't do this. You're just a puny person. Don't you see how big this need is? So you get scorn. You get ridiculed. But what's the answer to that? He says, I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. Do you see his confidence? Do you see his courage? We, his servants, will start rebuilding. He is confident. He is courageous. He is bold. And he exhibits authority. Look at this. And he says, But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So when the enemy comes and he, you start thinking those put-down thoughts, you say, Wait a minute. Wait a minute. We're going to build. We're going to build. And you got no place here, devil. You got no place here. You got no right here. There is no more foothold for you. You're out. You can't participate. Isn't that exciting? But where does all this come from? The deep felt burden that Nehemiah had birthed in his, in just in his soul by God because he waited on the Lord. He begins to attack the need. He's absolutely, utterly determined. We trust in lots and lots of things and the enemy has lots and lots of tactics, but his very first tactic is scorn and it's ridicule. And then in chapter 3, the whole of chapter 3, Tells you about the division of the labor and uh, all the 42 groups of, of people who are going to build and where they're going to build and so forth. Jump over to chapter 4. We're told when Sanballat heard that we, had, we were actually rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. And so in other words, the word that came down to Nehemiah, the ridicule, didn't stop him. He actually began the work. And, and to Sanballat, he was absolutely incensed when Nehemiah began the building of the wall. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life? from whose heaps of rubble burned as they are? And Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? Even if a fox climbed up on it, he'd break down their wall of stones. Is that ridicule? Would that make you feel puny? Would you think, oh man, oh man, can we do this? Now is when you've got to overcome the enemy. When the enemy really starts coming against you with heavy, heavy ridicule, really pouring it on, you begin the work, 
You put your hand to the plow. You don't look back. You don't quit. You don't give up. You put your hand to the plow. Hear us, O oh our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Oh God, you've called me to do this work. And there is opposition in that spiritual realm. This, those evil spirits are stirring up these people. God, turn it around. Turn it around. But you see, the ridicule and the sarcasm, it only heats up and it turns into threats. That's the next level. Threats come. We're told, so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart. So the wall is halfway built. You ever get halfway through a job and then look and say, how much more do we have to go? And feel a bit overwhelmed. This is a critical, critical point. You and I start jobs, we may start them with great enthusiasm, and we make work with all of our heart, but you get halfway through. You get the wall half built. You get halfway there. You're not home yet, but you're halfway there, and all of a sudden you begin to think how much more you have to do. It can be very disheartening, can't it? And this is where the enemy really begins to bear in. To bear down when the work is halfway done. Can't afford to be complacent. The wall is going up and the enemy is gathering his forces. The opposition is first, again, derision and scorn, but it turns to threats. And now the mutual enemies form an alliance against Nehemiah and his people. Look at this. He says, but when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod, all these guys are normal enemies, but now they have a common foe. And so they drop their animosities and they band together and they're going to uh, resist Nehemiah. When they heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. Question. Do they have a reasonable reason to be angry? No. No. They don't. The devil does not have a reasonable reason. People opposed to you do not have a reasonable reason. You've got to see that. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God in the face of the threats. What did they do? Did they utter threats in return? Did they run and hide? What does it say? They prayed to their God. Beloved, we pray to our God. We pray to our God. We pray to our God in the face of those threats. We are confident in him. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. Uh-oh, now there's opposition coming from within. The strength of the laborers is giving out. 
and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Uh-oh. Not only is there opposition from the outside, but now there's opposition from the inside. Nehemiah's dealing with these guys out here. saying, oh, God, protect us here. And now from the inside, there's discouragement beginning to happen. Discouragement beginning to happen within the camp. The wall is halfway built. It looks like it's an impossible task. There's too much rubble. They can't clear it all away. It's a big job. Do you ever get discouraged in the face of a big job? And it requires somebody to come along and stir us up again and say, but let's keep at it. Let's keep at it. Robert Schuller said, I heard this a long time ago, he says, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. How simple. I can't eat that huge elephant. Yes, you can. One bite at a time. You need a big refrigerator. Because <laughs> it's going to take a while. So much rubble. Also, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. Look at verse 12. This is incredible. Then the Jews who lived near them. What's he talking about? These are the people who lived on the periphery and lived near the Ammonites. Lived near the Horonites. Lived near the Arabs. These are the ones who were associating with these godless people. These guys come in and they told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Great encouragement. Great encouragement. Have you ever had scorn heaped on you? Have you ever had ridicule heaped on you for the sake of the kingdom? People actually mock you and laugh at you and put you down and say all kinds of things about you. Try to demean you when you share the gospel. How does that make you feel? Wonderful? You ought to rejoice, right? Jesus said rejoice. Rejoice, for the kingdom is yours. Great is your reward in heaven. When men speak this way about you. See, it's a matter of, of our perspective of things. There are far, far, far too many Christians who've never experienced any scorn or ridicule. Far too many Christians are still in the closet. Haven't yet come out. Not willing to declare for fear that they will be what? Ridiculed. Ridiculed. If you don't have any ridicule or scorn heaped on you, maybe Satan doesn't think you're worthy, worthy bothering about. You're not a threat. He'd just keep you nice and quiet and keep you thinking, oh, I don't want people to say anything nasty to me. He never bothers about half-hearted Christians the devil never bothers about half-hearted Christians. And so there's opposition. Oh, there's opposition. From the outside and from the inside. Look at Nehemiah. Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall the exposed places, posting them by the families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. After I looked things over, 
I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Don't fear. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Fight! I spoke to a couple this afternoon whose marriage is a mess. And I said to him, I said, fight for your wife. I said to her, fight for your husband. Stand up. Fight. Was that a good thing to say, do you think? That opens the door for what goes on next in the next verses up through verse 23. The building and the battling. And they were building the wall and they had their weapons ready. And they work in two shifts. You can't just do all battling and no building. You can't just do all building and no battling. A principle I learned a long time ago is wait on the Lord and work on. Wait on the Lord and work on. Say that with me. Wait on the Lord and work on. You see? Because we're building. We're building. We're working on. And yet, we're battling as we wait on the Lord. We're standing firm with the armor on. But we're still building simultaneously. You've got to be doing both. You've got to be doing both. You've got to be doing the spiritual warfare, and you've got to keep working. You've got to be doing the spiritual warfare, and you've got to keep working. You've got to be praying for that person. You've got to be praying for that person, and you've got to be talking to them. You've got to be praying for that person and talking to them. Praying for that person and talking to them. Building and battling. Building and battling. Building and battling. Now I want you to see this. I want you to jump over to the warfare, chapter 6. The building is going on. They have some problems internally still with dissension and greed and so forth. But I want to jump over to the warfare issue in chapter 6. Word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gate. So nothing, it's not all finished yet. Sanballat and Geshem sent me a message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. You know what? God has one great burning passion in his heart. Can you think of what that one great burning passion is in his heart? Who can quote, quote 2 Chronicles 16.9? The eyes of the Lord move to and fro, range throughout the whole earth, looking, seeking for what? For one man. For one man or one woman 
whose heart is completely his. Why? So that God says so that I may support him or her strongly. Amen. Nehemiah is that one man. The burning passion in God's heart is can I depend upon you, Willie? <laughs> Do you have a heart for me, Willie? That's what he says. Blake, do you have a heart for me, God says. A passion for me. Unquenchable. Is your heart completely mine so that I can strongly support you? Because when the enemy comes in like a flood, we're going to need him. We're going to need him. And the enemy does attack. God wants available people to so fill them with his Holy Spirit that they may become channels through whom he can do what he wants to do. We're not called to initiate programs. We're called, beloved, to impart God's love and spirit to the world in which we live. The wall is nearly finished. The wall is nearly finished here. But the opposition is heating up even more. In a last-ditch effort to prevent the completion of the wall. Oh, you can see, you can see we've almost got the finished product in sight. It's coming right down to the wire. We're making progress. We've got the wall built. We've just got a few more things to do. Oh, man. Oh, man. And you've got to know that the enemy is heating up. One last ditch effort he's going to throw at you. And you know what those last ditch efforts are? This is, this is interesting. Nehemiah had to face three forms of attack. The first one is friendship with the world. Friendship with the world. They said to him, come on down. Come on down to one of our villages. Come on down to our level. Don't be so extreme. Don't be so radical. <laughs> Don't be so narrow. Come on down where we are and fellowship with us. Come on, you've done your bit now, Nehemiah. Take it easy. Be a Christian if you like, but let's not be fanatical about it. Amen. Friendship with the world. Wooing you. Wooing you. Away from the task of building and bringing to completion. Is your family all that you want it to be? Or be sold out to the world? Is there still significant work to be done in your family? Or be sold out to the world? Are you fellowshipping with the world? I'm a Christian, but I don't, I, you know, I'm not sure I want to be fanatical like you. Well, all those around you will be lost. They'll perish because you got sucked in. The second 
form of attack he had to face. He said, but they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply, I am carrying on a great project, and I cannot go down. I love that. I'm doing a great work. I will not come down. Remember the end of the Gospels? The end of the Gospels, Jesus is on the cross. And they say, if you're the Son of God, come on down. And Jesus, in effect, says, I am doing a great work. I will not come down until it is what? Completed, until it is finished. I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent me his aid uh, with the same message. In his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written. Now here comes. Here is the second thing he had to face. This is slander. He's charged with being prideful and self-seeking with setting up his own personal kingdom. Do you know something? That's what I've been charged with. I've been called a Hitler. I have. At a, at a Southern California Teachers Association meeting, publicly I was slandered. This church was slandered. I was called a Hitler. You were, you were called all sorts of names. <laughs> by, some member, by some member of the Redondo Beach School Board. Now, I'm, I'm in the process of finding out who that person is. And when I find out who that person is, do you know what I'm going to do? That's right! I'm going to weep over him. I'm going to mourn over him. I'm going to fast and I'm going to pray. I'm going to say, oh, God, give me that soul. If you can't be persuaded to compromise, beloved, your motives will be misrepresented. If you can't be persuaded to compromise. And then the third one is the lure of an easygoing, compromising religion where there's no persecution, no carrying of the cross, but one that's governed by fear and the opinion of others. He won't come down. They try to discredit him. He said, I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. They're all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not complete it. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. And one day... I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehidabel, who was shut, at his, shut up in his home. He said, let us meet together in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. Now, you know what? Shemaiah is a wolf in sheep's clothing. He's a consort with Nehemiah's enemies. 
He's trying to get him sucked in to just going in the temple and spend all his time in the temple so he's not going to be persecuted. He'll be safe. He'll be safe. Is it your goal as a Christian to be safe? Because if it is, you'll be safe, but you'll be terribly unfruitful and miserable, and your faith will be lukewarm. And Jesus said something about lukewarm people. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. And he'd been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. I love this. Look at verse 15. He says, after all this, and so the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. But it all starts, it all starts with what? A burden. The formation of a burden in your soul. And there will be opposition. With God's help, that opposition can be overcome. And you you see it. Scorn, ridicule, threats, seductions, friendliness with the world. But like Jesus, we say, I will not come down. I am doing a good work, and I'm going to continue to do this work until it is finished. And God says, I will bring to completion the good work that I have begun. But I am looking for a few good men and a few good women. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for Nehemiah. God, I thank you for lighting another fire in my spirit. I thank you, God, for the truth and the beauty and the precision of the things that you've revealed to to me personally in these first six chapters. Lord, I pray that each one of us would think on these things. Lord, that those of us who desire to serve you, those of us who desire to serve you would understand the dynamics that go into this service, that we would not fail, and that that work would be brought to completion. That all the people around God would say and see that you are on your throne and that you do rule. Lord, bless the church. Strengthen the church, I pray. We give you thanks tonight. We love you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that Jesus didn't come off that cross. Thank you he didn't quit. Thank you he didn't give up. Thank you, Father, that he took it to the end. That we might have life. 
Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. Thank you, Lord. Amen.